0: Welcome to The lock Each week, I sit down with a special guest and we discuss how going out has led them to become the person they are today, covering everything from the people to the places to the music. My name is Tobias Graham, I'm your bartender for the night, and this is The Glories Lock-In. Joining me in the pub tonight is writer, filmmaker, the author of their memoir Life as a Unicorn, and the performer behind drag artist Glamru. Amru Al-Kadi, welcome to the pub. Hi,
1: so nice to be back.
0: How does it feel to be back in um this gorgeous venue?
1: Um, it is strange after being um, home alone for over a year, kind of feels like being in a spaceship, but I'm very happy to be out of my domestic prison.
0: How has your lockdown 3.0 been?
1: Yeah, this one was tough. I mean, the first one was a little bit sort of like a social experiment. It was like, oh, I'm going to, you know, use all this time to read and get grounded and all that mindfulness bullshit. Um, but this, <sighs> this latest lockdown has been quite arduous, I'm not going to lie just you know most of it was really really cold it's just not um it's just not regular to, to be starved of seeing people for this long like I've forgotten how to socialize and how to be around other people like like and I found that my concentration and my my just overall kind of like brain energy has been really zapped this Mm. lockdown whereas like in the first couple of lockdowns i was a little bit more productive and a bit more kind of oh i actually kind of liked not having to socialize that much but now i'm like somehow my brain is just slightly on lockdown itself
0: i'm quite nervous to go back around big groups i feel like i'm very out of practice
1: yeah i know what you mean i'm nervous to date i'm nervous to hook up with people i'm nervous to Yeah, I want to kind of break it in slowly. Like, I want to maybe go to the pub with, like, two people, then three people. Then I just, because I'll pass out if I go to a club all of a sudden.
0: It's funny that you mentioned dating, because I was doing the old swiping the other night. And I was getting really nervous, because I was remembering dating pre-pandemic. And that kind of, like, casual expectation of sex, that was, like, totally cool with me. And now I'm kind of, like, nervous about being, having that kind of, like, expected intimacy with someone after
1: so long. I completely agree. I completely agree. I also don't really like online dating. I just prefer to go out to bars and meet people that way. And, you know, because I actually, I'm never really sure what I'm going to be attracted to. And, like, I'm not that physical with who I'm attracted to. So, like, I find Grindr a bit of a hellscape. And... Tinder and Hinge, you know, I just I, I just can't really get a sense of who I fancy off those apps. Like, I just can't. But it's been making me too anxious as well. The idea of casual sex is making me anxious, just like after a year of sort of being taught that our bodies are these kind of vectors of viral plague. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Scary. Mm,
1: but I mean, I'm excited. I just, I, it's really made me realise how important it is to, you know have desire and be sociable and to be around other people especially other queers like it's been really hard being alone all this time i just want to remember how to do it
0: i totally agree well tonight we get to um, reminisce about those those times before i'm gonna light the candle because this the pub is dark and we need to get the feng shui going and while i'm doing that what is your go-to drink I need to get you a drink, I'm your bartender.
1: Oh, my go-to drink, really tacky. But if I want to get kind of high and sugary and drunk, I'll have like a vodka cranberry. It's a little bit teenage, but it just sort of puts (laughs) me in a bit of a silly mood. It just kind of, I don't know what it is, but it just makes me feel a bit like I'm at uni or something. It just makes me, and it also just makes me really, the sugar I think makes me more drunk than the actual alcohol content.
0: You were shots person.
1: Tequila. I had a really bad experience on Sambuca when I was 19 because I had 13 in one night and then <sighs> was like paralytically ill and now even like if someone orders it next to me the smell can set me off like I have a kind of trauma associated with Sambuca unfortunately but tequila I love. It's like a shot of drugs.
0: Okay so I'm gonna get you your vodka cranberry and while I do that we need to get in the mood to party so do you have a a song that will fire, put that fire inside you to want to go and dance.
1: It's so weird because loads of new songs I've never gone partying to because parties have been closed for a year. Um, so it's so hard to tell what would really get me in the mood. But um, Rain On Me, probably Lady Gaga, Ariana. Just, I think that might get me in the mood. Or Stupid Love, Lady Gaga. I am a bit of a basic at heart. I think I would like one of those too. But if I was like... Maybe if I wanted a bit more of a sexual night, some disco. Um, oh, Ooh, I feel love. I feel love. I feel mm. love. Donna Summer. I feel love. That will get me nice and horny.
0: If you want to listen to Donna Summer and Get Horny, or in fact, if you want to listen to any of the music that Amory mentions in this episode, then we have made a handy little Spotify playlist where you can go and do that to enjoy this lock-in experience in full. You grew up in Dubai and Bahrain, then you moved to London. You ended up at Eton for sixth form. Yeah. Which sounds terrifying on so many levels. But let's talk about how this kind of spilled into nightlife Mm -hmm. because you started going out around that time
1: yeah so i was yeah living at home in london between 11 and 15 and then things got really complicated at home because of my family and so i decided to apply for a scholarship to Eton college which is why i went there for two years um and I kind of just wanted to go to a school that was literally like the opposite of um, my house and sort of some of the more homophobic tenants of Islam that I was being subjected to, to. So I just thought, you know, oh, Eton College might be the place for me. It definitely wasn't. But while I was there and I was sort of away from home, whenever we were allowed out on weekends, yeah, I would just go, part- just get so drunk every single weekend um, at sort of the clubs that the boys went to. And these were like really horrible clubs, like Bougie and Mavida and like Amica. Chris I think even, where, you know, people are spending like five grand on a table, um, you know, and like a bottle of vodka is £400. Pounds. But it were very straight as well. You know, it was all about like you have to have more girls than boys. Boys pay, girls don't pay, um, and but I just, I just spent whatever pocket money I had there trying to sort of, um, kind of you know live up to like the other boys. But I mean, I became quite obsessed with going to those clubs because they were so stupid, and they were a bit like having a lobotomy. You know, like, I've always been, like, quite cerebral and very academic at school and have a lot of, like, OCD and anxiety and a lot of, like, always in my head. And I just loved going to this sort of bizarre, like, urban playground every weekend where the only thing that mattered was, like, how many girls do you have with you? And everyone's so kind of dense and no one's having any proper conversation and... You know, you can just stand there for eight hours. Like, it's so different to the kind of clubbing that I now practice and love and all that stuff. But it it was just the sort of the mindlessness of it that I found really almost liberating from, you know, a lot of the kind of harder stuff that was going on at home. And also, some of the people that I was hanging out with always had, like, good tables. And it sounds so basic, but I was so, like, loved the status of it. In a kind of just, it was the first time that I was like, oh, wow, maybe I'm cool because I'm like sitting with the right people. I mean, none of these people are my friends now. The whole thing is so vapid and empty and just awful, awful. But, you know, at the time, I was so just looking to like belong to part of the cool club after having been bullied so much. And, you know, in the club, it was just like, oh, yeah, if you sit on that table, you're cool. But I mean, it was horrible, really. But yeah, that was probably my first, yeah.
0: Did it ever make you really angry being in those? spaces like did you find yourself getting obviously there's the side of it where it's like the status and it's kind of exciting in that sense but did you ever did it ever infuriate you
1: definitely I mean you know just this sort of disposableness of yourself you know people suddenly like being nice to you if you're like sat near a table which has loads of booze and then if they realise that, like, you don't have access to any tables, and being really horrible to you. Also, they were just really kind of heterosexual and, um, and kind of homophobic and misogynist as well, you know. I often would have people try and kick me off their tables because I was, like, really femme. And there was this, yeah, one guy who really, like, was just, whenever I was there, he would, like, get the club to kick me out. He just had such a problem with me. So that kind of made me furious and I was so looking for um, belonging that any friend that I made in those clubs, you know, even if it was just like in the loo or, you know, on the table, I'd like be like, oh, give me your number, let's go for lunch. And I would always like go for lunch with them and stuff. And, and, um, the friendships are obviously so superficial and based on nothing, um, and yeah, I used to get angry a lot when I realized that like I spent so much money and time and effort with all these people that like the second that because basically when I was when I turned 16 to 18, I inherited like a little bit of money, not loads. It was like 10 grand. Um, but I just got given that from an uncle for various kind of um, and I spent it all one summer at these clubs and. Um, just looking to buy friends and looking to sort of and you know when I did have money for like a table people were really nice to me but then the second it ran out nobody was so yeah I did get quite angry.
0: It's weird though because the clubs and we speak about it with like queer spaces how you you find that comfort but I guess also just it's interesting that even that club could create I guess it wasn't comfort but this sort of liberation from like the person that you were outside it suddenly was like you could somehow reinvent or or do things that maybe you wouldn't do
1: well I suppose with a queer club you actually are hopefully being your true self and you're actually finding yourself whereas in this instance a lot more kind of for me anyway it was about forgetting myself you know it was like I would leave having these like horrible rows with my family about my sexuality and then suddenly in the club just because I like could afford a good bottle of champagne I suddenly felt like an it girl and everyone was being really nice Mm -hmm. to me and so for me it was like the opposite of um you know that queer club experience where you find your people and you feel like you're you're going kind of home to yourself and also like the fake the fake quality of like the vip area like what the fuck is that like I don't think any club should really have a vip area really but like you know the fact that you can cue jump. It just ma- gave you like a kick when, you know, if you're like someone who's been really bullied or, you know, been rejected by family or whatever, suddenly like little things like, ooh, you're allowed to cue jump, make you feel like, oh my God, maybe I am loved. And so I think there was part of that as well, just like the little bits of validation. But but no, they're ve- it's a very different experience. I mean, it wasn't a good one. It wasn't healthy. Do you
0: remember your first time in a queer venue?
1: I think it was definitely heaven. I don't know, I actually like for a while was always quite scared of queer venues because in the straight venues, no one could reject me for being unattractive or not wanting to get with me. I often was like, yeah, I'm the only gay one here and everyone thinks I'm a bit of a ridiculous clown anyway, so I'm just gonna play into that. And I'm just going to drink and have all these gorgeous girlfriends. And all these straight guys would always be really nice to me if I had, like, you know, cute girlfriends because they would all, like, come to talk to me. And a lot of them would be like, I'm a fag hag. Like, it was just really hell, to be honest. Um, But, you know, it was that world. And then I remember when I started going to queer clubs, I actually found it a lot riskier kind of emotionally because it was like, oh, my God, here are people who are, like, I could genuinely try it on with and I might get rejected. Um, And so for a while, yeah, I, I went to heaven and stuff, but was so uncomfortable about my body and about my looks and about, and I hadn't really had any sex that I felt more scared there than sort of being the court jester, I suppose, in the other clubs.
0: There's so much expectation on that first time in the gay bar or the queer bar especially for newbies, especially people moving to a city or somewhere where they've never had that before. But I think you're so right in the fact that you're suddenly in a space where rejection is way more palpable because you go from being the only gay, but to suddenly being like, you're part of this community who could so easily turn around and be like,
1: you don't belong here. I mean, rejection from the queer community hurts. Like, if I go to like Adonis, which I do love, and... You know, it's there's too many mass guys and they are being a little bit transphobic and crap and femme phobic. Like that does hurt a lot more than like going to one of those clubs and people just being like being I don't know, like it just it's a bit scarier when when um But I guess, you know, initially I was going to a lot of gay spaces rather than queer spaces, which was, you know, just about gay men, and there is that sort of um and yeah, I did used to go in with that kind of, if I don't pull tonight, then tonight has been worthless. Whereas now, actually, that's not why I go out. Like, if I do pull, that's great. But I really do go to be around my queer friends and, you know, to be in drag or to be out. Like, it's about self-expression. I don't, whereas, yeah, initially it was like, right, I need to go get laid. Um, and my whole night would be like, that guy rejected me. What about him? What about him? What about, you know, it was like that kind of, of exhausting and you know unfortunately like you know we can say oh queer spaces are wonderful but gay men can be very shallow but yeah i mean heaven i remember just being like oh my god yay this is music that i can dance to
0: what was the music like then
1: downstairs it was like cheese pop so kylie you know there's celine dion mariah and then like some like gay dancey tracks so like you know kelly Rowland's commander and all that kind of now 51, like, David Guetta remixes, <clears throat> that kind of thing. And then upstairs, it was always, like, Destiny's Child and Ashanti and r and um, Proper, like, you know, gay goofball, like, just dancing your heart out to your childhood favourite songs. But it, was, it would be weird. I, I remember for the first few times that I would always just go in, like, quite a basic tank top just so that I didn't look too femme. This is when I was, like, 18, 19, you know, just because you had that insecurity. You know, now when I go out, I'll just, like, wear whatever I feel like wearing. But, you know, it's odd how, like, I used to feel more comfortable dressing up femme in, like, a straight club because I was like, right, well, I am queer, and you all know that now, so you know that I'm not, like, playing your game, and I just want to be here and dance. Probably what straight women feel like when they come to gay clubs. Um, And then... Suddenly going into a gay club, it was like, right, are oh, my arms toned? Gosh, this is kind of scary. So, yeah, quite nerve-wracking for, for a good good few first times.
0: And then is that kind of where Denim, the night that you set up in Cambridge, came from? That sort of ideology and those, that sort of strange gay space?
1: Yeah, I mean, Ka- the Cambridge gay scene was sort of virtually non-existent in terms of I mean there was like one club night and that was really again quite like male and who's got the best tank top and that kind of stuff and I was like this is so crap like I'd so and I'd always wanted to get in drag so I yeah I just started a club night called denim and I was like I'll be in drag and I told some friends about it who were also in drag I was like let's maybe sing a few songs but it wasn't really about that at the time and we did do a show but it was so like i mean the first time we did it was like 400 people came in drag sat in a cellar like underneath the college which i'm sure was like asbestos ridden and you know i like rented out a mic sang a couple of songs got some friends to do it um and yeah i suppose it was like probably the first kind of queerer night at, at cambridge I was I I suppose I was hating, gay clubbing being about, am I man enough and um, am I gonna pull? I would often just go to these like gay clubs being like, feeling I would leave feeling really bad about myself, and I was like that this is crap. I want to go to a gay club and feel really great about myself, and so I started denim, and you know and everyone arrived in drag. So like if you weren't in drag, then you were the odd one out, and that was really great.
0: Was that first denim night your first time in drag?
1: Well, I had been in drag in school plays when I played girl parts. But that was my first sort of time as glamru, you know, aesthetically figuring out who she was. And yes, yeah, actually it was. It was.
0: But that was just, that wasn't terrifying. That was just really exciting.
1: Was it terrifying? I mean, I I was quite terrified because I didn't really know what I was doing. Like, I didn't know how to do makeup. I didn't really know how to do wigs, you know, I was winging it, you know, I was only like 19 or 20 at the time, and, you know, I'd invited all these students to come, and 400 were coming, I'd never performed in drag, so I was sort of terrified, but, I don't know, it was like a, you know, that kind of like youthful naivety of just like, I'd probably be a lot more scared doing that now than I was back then, because back then, you know, there's just kind of less to lose, I mean, I had no money in my bank account. I had no relationship with family. I had, you know, no partner. I was just like, whatever, like, let's just... And people really wanted to come and support, and it was really fun. And, and actually, as soon as I was in drag, I felt really comfortable. I remember the second that I was in drag and was just sort of moving around the space, and um, I knew how to walk in heels really quickly, and... Um, So actually, as soon as the drag came on, I was like, oh, this is the least scared I've ever actually felt in a gay club.
0: How long were you doing the denim night for in Cambridge?
1: I did it for the three years that I was the the remaining three years that I was there.
0: And then you just went on. You became the girl band touring everywhere.
1: Yeah, we did that for, for. So I left Cambridge in 2013 and I think we did denim till 2018. I mean the first, we started doing nights in London at the Bethnal Green Working Men's Club because we really wanted to find it's quite hard to find those sort of really good theatre and club spaces because you know denim for people who have seen it or haven't seen it you know we like to do a, we used to like to do you know a good one hour live singing show with comedy so we was always trying to find those venues that could have people sat down listening and then once the show was over we could move all the chairs and have people dance and Bethnal Green Working Men's Club were amazing to us because they made they gave we had no cover charge and we didn't have to share the door money all they wanted was the the all they wanted was um the bar tab and you know we were so broke I mean I cannot I can't even really remember how broke I was back then but it was very much like fuck I don't have five pounds to put on my oyster card what am I going to do for this week you know it was like that for a few years and so to have like a venue just say. You know, there are no costs. just amazing. You know, we did shows at the Glory, um, which were always great, and similarly very, very... I don't think there were any costs, really, to that as well. Downstairs is really good. Um, yeah, and those, those venues of theatre-slash-nightclubs are actually quite far and few between, where it's, like, really can do both. I mean, the Glory does it very well.
0: When you came to London after being at uni was was performing your full-time gig
1: i mean performing was um i was trying to make performing my full-time gig um it was just really hard obviously like because also there was five of us in denim so everything had to be split five ways Um, We were able to get, like, some makeup sponsorship, which meant that we didn't have to spend any money on makeup, which was very good. That's amazing. Yeah, I know, I know. That was, like, a real coup, if I don't say so myself. (laughs) Just because it's just, like, otherwise it would be, like, £200 a month, just, like, the amount of makeup that you actually need. Um, I was doing all kinds of jobs, really. Um, Mostly ended up doing, like, tutoring for for teenagers who are doing their GCSEs. I was able to just, like, tutor some kids, do some kind of other performing work. I did loads of role plays for, for hospitals. So like, like doctors in training, practicing with patients and then, and then slowly started writing a column for the independent, which was like paid me twice, a twice a month. And then, and then eventually it sort of all kind of fell together. Like the kind of line between writing and performing kind of just blended because of obviously like, with drag, you are just essentially a writer-performer because you're writing your own material, which you're then performing. And then I signed with an agent who like definitely got me to do more pure writing work for kind of Hollyoaks is actually then, from about 2017, I was I wrote on Hollyoaks, which is then how I managed to sort of have some stability in London. I
0: used to be obsessed with Hollyoaks.
1: I think loads <laughs> of the gays actually were quite obsessed with Hollyoaks.
0: Did you have to watch a lot of Hollyoaks before writing for Hollyoaks?
1: Um, y- yes, I did. And it's... I actually think for a soap, it's pretty great. Like... Um, and I've written on quite a lot of different TV shows now. And, you know, a lot of them are kind of more sort of elevated than Hollyoaks. But I would still say that Hollyoaks is probably the hardest graft out of all of them. Because, you know, the, the pace at which they're churning out story. Like, there's an episode every single day. There's so many characters you know, just being across who hasn't slept with so-and-so's uncle and that kind of stuff. And, and I don't know, like, it really trained me to write quickly and to write, um, and I wrote a drag storyline for them, which I think was done quite well, actually. You mean, what, what was quite great about writing for Hollyoaks? Like, people kind of look down on soaps, but, you know, that was 1.5 million people every day who were watching it. That's quite a lot of people to, to, to be sort of talking to. Um, and so I was quite happy to work on the drag storyline um, because I actually think we did it quite nuanced. Um, um, and I worked on a far right storyline about this kind of gay far right character who becomes radicalised, gay white character who becomes radicalised by the far right against a Muslim character because you see that a lot in the gay community like in france particularly like some white gays become really islamophobic because they think like islam's coming for all of their rights kind of thing so like you know that was i i loved my time on Hollyoaks and it kind of transformed my life financially i have to be honest
0: when you think about the denim nights or just your denim journey what music would take you back to those days is again a specific song or an artist that you just hear and you're like oh happy times
1: Florence and the Machine Spectrum is a song that means a lot to us because we were doing a gig at Bethnal Green Working Men's Club one time and we were singing that and then I was like who's that drag queen who looks like Florence the Machine bobbing up to the stage and it actually was Florence Welch um and she's like oh can I sing that with you and I was like didn't even really realize it was her. And then she did come on and she sang it with us. And then it was so much fun that we actually did it at NYC Down Low at Glastonbury with her. So whenever I I hear Spectrum, it just like, I'm like, oh my God, that was such a special moment. Denim, you know, and I do this a lot on my current drag shows as well, you know, like to take existing pop songs and rewrite them and change the meaning. You know, like So Emotional by Whitney Houston is a song that, Is just reminds me of Denim because I used to to perform that, but it was like a, a, a breakup song to Allah. And you know, Denim was really, we were really influenced by like Atomic Kitten, Spice Girls, that kind of really camp, cheesy girl band pop, Girls Aloud.
0: Sugar Babes. Sugar Babes,
1: yeah. I mean, I can't even, don't even remember who's in what version of the Sugar Babes anymore. I love, I miss the cheese of pop music. Like I love Billie Eilish and Lord and Lana. And I think they're all amazing artists, but I quite love the like stupid cheese of like early nineties pop music. It wasn't trying to be serious. It was just, it was like quite stupid and it was fine. I'm looking for cheese in my life.
0: Same, I feel like a lot of people have still hold those girl groups tight. When they come on in any bar, people are always gonna be up on their feet, haven't they? I know. Absolute bop. <laughs> I do wanna talk about um, the episode for Little America that you wrote. I watched it last night and I was like, it just hit me and it was so gorgeous.
1: I want more people to see it because I just don't think a lot of people know how to access Apple TV, to be honest.
0: I mean, the story is like, it feels gut-wrenching, but the whole club scene, is so wonderful and it feels like feels like such a poignant end. And it's just, it's, it's a really lovely moment. And I thought it was also really clear how, just how that like nightlife journey that you've experienced yourself, how that felt like there was some sort of, that had seeped into your work in that sense.
1: I mean, so me and Stephen Dunn, who is the director of the episode and who wrote, we wrote it together. That club scene when we were writing it, it actually, you know, cause the, the episode's only like half an hour. But, and it spans literally like five years. If you actually look at like how much we had to get into that episode, we had to do, you know, it was like we had to do a bit of Syria, Jordan. I mean, it's like a big thing. And so, you know, the whole, to people who haven't seen it or have seen it, you know, the whole episode is about, you know, a gay Arab character who has to leave his biological family and find a chosen family where he can be safe. And he's looking for family wherever he goes. And so... The club scene was really important in a sense of... It just felt like it really um, hit the kind of themes of home and homecoming and belonging really, really well. But also, before he's allowed into the club, he's actually... It's almost like another um, barrier, like another sort of... um, Because someone asks for his ID and he doesn't have one because he's an asylum seeker and he only has his papers. And so it's almost like... It it's like this last sort of um barrier of acceptance and you know, the whole story is about someone who's sort of trying to enter new countries and like even entering the club is like a is is like an immigration battle as it is. So there was just something about like being in the club that just felt like it just hit the themes of like family, belonging, um, you know, coming home suddenly just being at a destination and uh the late Chi Chi Devane just did the most amazing performance for it um I mean it's the most magical you know I try not to like be like oh this but I honestly think that that performance from Chi Chi is really quite spectacular
0: it is and even just the song which is Kelly Clarkson breakaway did you choose that song?
1: Yeah, we did choose the song, yeah. You know, one of the gay characters has an obsession with Kelly Clarkson. And we and that was, like, a really gay sort of reference, which a lot of, like, people were like, hmm, why did you use Kelly Clarkson? And it was just, like, a lot of gays would understand, like, stanning quite a randomly famous celebrity. Like, there's just something about, like, having a deep obsession with, like, Mutual Buena or, like, Nadine Coyle or Kelly Clarkson, or you know, and the lyrics to the song really just resonate with the with the um, with the episode as well. And I was very pleased she let us use the song. We actually had to ask her very nicely.
0: Okay, now it is time in the lock-in for our award ceremony. So this is the F A G Awards, the Fun and Gay Awards. Cue the theme tune. So category number one is the best pub in the world.
1: I like the French house on Dean Street. I've just had really good dates there and I love making out in the corner. I'm not sure if it is the best pub, but I've just had a lot of memories there. Also, I like that they do they do half pints. They're just much more dignified.
0: Okay, second category is the best club or club night.
1: I love... Um, it's in new york actually it's called inferno um and it's like a queer sex party but it's also like a club as well and it's just very like trans inclusive and very um diverse and i felt really good about myself there in a way that like i probably wouldn't at a gay sex party in the uk which are a lot more sort of white and masculine it's one of the best nights i've had in a really long time
0: next one is the best We're calling it the best supporting city, but just the best city to party in.
1: New York, I I go there a lot really for work, but I just, the drag is next level. It's much more diverse racially and it's much more, it's wilder and the sex is great there. And (laughs) it's just, it's got like an energy that like, I mean, London gays are quite mean. I will say that like London gays can be quite mean. And it can be quite white here, whereas like I'm sure there are segments of New York which are like that. But I've always felt a lot freer there whenever I'm going out. That's
0: really nice to hear. I will say actually because I was in New York for a really short time while I was studying. I found it really intimidating and uh, impenetrable in a weird way. I don't think I I discovered a queer scene. I think I I went to a, a very gay scene and it was very white and it was very mask and i didn't enjoy it and i really wanted to find the queer scene so i obviously just wasn't looking hard enough
1: i think i think it's hard actually probably is impenetrable i was lucky to have some friends there and you know staying in brooklyn and just doing it more you know manhattan and chelsea is probably not where you want to go for that kind of thing i i find that people in america generally in la and new york have a healthier attitude to sex than British people do. They've got a healthier attitude to dating. You can just go up to someone in a bar and be like, here's my number. And people be like, cool. Whereas like that would be kind of scarier to do in London.
0: Final award is for your dream celebrity party guest. So you can go out with anyone, dead or alive, for one night only.
1: Um, I would quite like to go for dinner with Sylvia Rivera just because she seems just... Like, she would have some incredible stories and probably just an incredible energy Um, and just politics. Yeah, I would love to just be around her for a day.
0: Okay, well, thank you, Amru, for joining me tonight in the pub. It's been lovely to chat with you. What are you most looking forward to about being able to go to a club or a pub again?
1: I'm looking forward to, like spontaneity and just like not planning social encounters which is what i hate about online dating and grinder and that kind of stuff like i just can't wait to sort of accidentally meet people and have random interactions i think that is why queer spaces are so important you know the sort of accidents and um so i just can't wait for for the messiness of that really
0: that concludes our lock-in. I'm going to clear away your vodka cranberry.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: And your tequila shot. Get home safe. And thank you again so much for sitting in the pub with me today.
1: Thanks for having me. Bye. Bye.
0: That was Amru Al-Khadi. I really highly recommend that episode of Little America. You can watch it on Apple TV+. Plus. And that is the end of this series of lock-ins. If you enjoyed it, please let us know. I've been Tobias Graham, and this has been The Glories Lock-In.